Well, hello again. Uh, We are currently in a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and we're doing this just on the the tail end of doing a sermon series based on the life of Moses that was primarily in the book of Exodus. And we're doing a sermon series on the Ten Commandments primarily for two reasons. One, when we went through the life of Moses, we did one sermon on the Ten Commandments at Exodus 20, and so all the pastors that were preaching just feel like we didn't do it justice, and so we wanted to come back to it and do it again. The other reason is that my guess for a lot of us, when we hear the Ten Commandments or we hear those famous words, thou shalt not, it causes us to cringe a little bit because we hear it and we think, oh man, just a bunch of rules and we don't like being told what to do. And so naturally, we are, our bent is to be almost against and bristle against the Ten Commandments. Um, author Chuck DeGroote wrote a book called Leaving Egypt. And in the book, he talked about a friend of his who came to him and said, why can't Christians have fun? And his perception of Christianity is that it was all about the rules and just kind of regulations. He went on to say that um, I don't, or he said, I hate that the Old Testament is about the rules and commands. I like Jesus because he's all about love. And so DeGroote offered this commentary on what his friend said. He said, My friend's analysis may appear to be true from a distance, but it misses the point. I'm convinced that finding God in the wilderness requires us to see God's law as a life-giving guide for living out our new identity as God's covenant people, not a life-sucking burden. And I think that sums up a lot of our experiences that God's law is life-sucking and not life-giving, that it's burdensome. And so it's our hope and prayer that we can recapture the life-givingness of God's law, to seek to learn as followers of Christ that this is our new identity as God's people. And so our hope in this sermon series is that we can all say, along with the psalmist from Psalm 119, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. And so I want to read our passage now, and then I'm going to pray to that very end. And so our passage is the third commandment. This comes from Exodus 20, verse 7, and this is what we read. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would slow us down this morning. Um, that we would have an honest assessment of your holiness and how we fall short. And then we would leave here with a spirit of gratitude because you are a God of pursuit and grace and mercy and steadfast love. And so, Father, I pray along with this psalm, I pray that we would long for your salvation, O Lord. I pray that this morning your law would be our delight. Father, let our souls live and praise you. And Father, let your rules help us. In your name I pray, amen. In February of 2022, an article came out in the Atlantic called The Age of Unique Baby Names by Joe Pinsker. And the idea of the article is that in previous generations, parents wanted their children to just sort of blend in. And now parents want their children to stand out. And they want this to happen within just a few minutes of leaving the womb, starting with their name. And the article stated that for some people, this is a really enjoyable process, but for others, it is incredibly pressure-packed and almost paralyzing. And so there's been an entire industry that's formed around the process. Okay, so now you can pay a consultant $250, 
and they will interview you and you can give them kind of your hopes and dreams for your child and then they'll provide you eight to ten names that you can name your child or you can pay thirty thousand dollars for baby name branding and so what this is it helps people in the public eye choose a name that reflects their personal brand so the article pointed out that in 1880, the percentage of babies who got a top 10 most popular name was in the neighborhood of 32%. In 1950, it dropped to about 28%. And in 2020, it had fallen to an all-time low of 7%. And so I have to say, I personally am a victim of this trend. I grew up with a name that I hated. I grew up with a name of which I got made fun of for having I was called Gordy. I was called Gordinia. I was told that Gordo means fat in Spanish. Playing sports, coaches all called my teammates by their last name, which I thought was super cool, but they only ever called me Gordon. One time I brought a friend home to meet my parents. His name was Trey, and when I introduced him to my parents, I received the crushing news that my parents intended to name me Trey, but at the last minute they switched to Gordon. And I was appalled. I mean, Trey Fleming, with a name like that, all of my athletic dreams would have indeed come true. I asked them why they changed their minds, and my mom told me, well, one, there's a lot of Trey's out there, and we wanted you to have a name not like everyone else, which is exactly what I wanted. But she said the second reason was because right before I was born, my grandfather, the original Gordon Ware Fleming, passed away, and they wanted to honor him by giving me his name. And that helped me a lot and made me at least a little more thankful for the name that they had given me. But my guess is that many of you received your names or named your children for similar reasons. Going back to the article, Pinsker points out, as family sizes shrunk and kids stopped doing labor, Americans started to fixate on the uniqueness of each child, as the sociologist Philip Cohen has written. And individuality emerged as a project starting with naming of creating an identity. So a funny example of this, somewhat funny I guess, comes from Johnny Cash's song, A Boy Named Sue. In the song he sang about his father who was a terrible, terrible man, and he left his, his mother and him when he was a baby. He said he was mean, he was terrible, but the worst thing he ever did was name him Sue. Growing up he would get made fun of, he was teased by girls and beat up by boys. On into adulthood, he dedicated his life to become a mean, tough, ornery person, vowing that if he ever met his dad, he would kill him for naming him Sue. Well, we're told one July in Gatlinburg, he goes into a bar and there's his dad. He approaches him and he says, how do you do? My name is Sue. And then punched him in between the eyes. A fight ensues and they fight and brawl for a while until finally both men are standing facing each other uh, holding guns. And this is what his dad says to him. He says, son, this world is rough. And if a man's got to make it, he's got to be tough. I knew I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I give you that name and I said goodbye. And I knew you'd have to get tough or die. It's that name that helped to make you strong. He said, now you just fought one heck of a fight. And I know you hate me and you've got the right to kill me now. And I wouldn't blame you if you do. But you ought to thank me before I die for the gravel in your gut and the spit in your eye because I'm the one who named you Sue. Well, I got choked up and I threw down my gun. I called him my pa. He called me his son. Come away with a different point of view. 
I think about him now and when, every time I try, every time I win, and if I ever have a boy, I'll name him Frank or George or Bill or Tom, anything but Sue. So what is my point here? Well, my point is is that there's so much more to our names than just letters and sounds because our names are wrapped up in our identity. And how we talk about people reveals to us how we perceive their identity. And this is the heart of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain because how we talk about God reveals how we feel about him. And it directly reflects our heart posture toward him because as toward him, excuse me, because as Jesus himself told us in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let's consider the third commandment. And in doing so, we're going to learn some things about God's heart, about our own hearts, about how we have sinful hearts, and we also have a remedy to what we are going to see is a pretty big problem. So earlier in the week, uh, in my preparation, I was reading a commentary, and one of the authors had a really brief statement that stuck with me, but he said, including within a person's name is his whole being. Let me read that again. Included within a person's name is his whole being. Now, we've already alluded to this about how our identities are closely connected to our names. Included within our names are our whole beings, and the same is true with God. Now, it would be impossible to sum up the identity and whole being of God in just one sermon or a lifetime, but let's just touch on a few this morning. And so you need to think about it. Who is the Lord? What is his character? What is his name or his reputation? Well, we know that his name is his revelation in the works of creation and redemption. In Psalm 8, the psalmist is under the impression of God's creation and man's place among the creatures, and he begins his psalm with this beautiful statement. He ends with it as well. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So God made a name for himself as creator. He did the same as redeemer and defender of his people, Israel. And so for that reason, he has made himself known by the name Yahweh, which which means I am who I am. And we saw this back in Exodus 3, that he is so undefinable that the only way that he can actually be defined is by comparison to himself. He exists as Savior and Liberator. He makes real what He says, and He does what He promises. In Exodus 34, He reveals Himself to Moses as a Lord, the Lord who is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in grace and truth. And our salvation that He offers us reflects this reality. In Psalm 16, we're told, Yet He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. Psalm 54 tells us that his name is strength. Psalm 75 tells us that his name is declared in his wondrous works. And then Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, when the only time in Scripture when Jesus speaks of his own heart, he says that it is gentle and lowly. So that was a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, but it doesn't even scratch the surface of the character, the personhood, the identity 
and the reality of God. But if we really pay attention and we know that to be true, then that naturally should lead us to reverence and to awe. He is truly the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and His name is above every name. Think about this. God is the only one in history who was never given a name. Think about that. You and I were given our names by our parents or somebody else. Even Jesus was given a name, but God has had his name, Yahweh, for all of eternity. And so because of that, it makes sense for him to set the standard on how we are to talk about him. Well, it begs the question, how do we talk about him? Or how do we think about him? How do our words and our thoughts reflect who he is? Do we give him the reverence his name, his character deserves? Well, I'm going to go ahead and point out out of the gate that this next point is not good news. So let's get it over with. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright in his commentary points out that in English, we don't really have a great translation of what is the third commandment. He said, in the Hebrew language, the original readers would have understood it a very different way. And so he he offers what he says is a more accurate translation, and this is what he wrote. He said, you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, to worthlessness. To worthlessness, or essentially to devalue it. And given what we have noted about the personhood and identity, the name of God, do you think we devalue the name of God? Absolutely. Earlier this week, I was reading a portion of the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Third Commandment. The Catechism is given to us and is one of, our, uh, one of the documents of the Constitution of our denomination. It's really just a summary of Christian belief that's given in question and answer form. So question 113 asks the question, what sins are forbidden in the third commandment? And this document that was written in 1648 goes on to list 38 different sins that are forbidden when we are not to take God's name in vain. And frankly, because it's 600 years later, there's probably way more than 38. So we're not going to go through the catechism this morning, but I do want to point out a few ways that I believe we lift up the name of Yahweh, our God, to worthlessness. And I want us to really kind of pay attention to three that I believe really hit home for us. So the first way we take God's name in vain, that we devalue his name, is what we all thought about when we read this commandment. And maybe it's the only way we've ever thought of this commandment. Cussing, right? Using God's name as an expletive or an exclamation mark saying GD or JC, but actually saying the names in a profound way. So that's an easy one, and that's fairly obvious, but that's not what all this command means. There's so much more to it. Another way we take God's name in vain is by what I'll call name-dropping God. Okay, so we name-drop all the time famous people that we know or maybe that we've met at some point. And why do we do that? Well, we primarily do it to open or shut doors that we can't open or shut on our own. And as a parent, you see this daily, right? A kid goes into a room and locks the door. A sibling comes up, wants to go into the door, starts banging on the door, and the door doesn't open until two magic words are uttered. Daddy said, or mommy said, and then magically the door opens. Sometimes, usually. 
But don't we do this regularly just in life in general, right? We want to get into a restaurant, and so you name drop someone that can give you access. You want to join a certain golf club, so you name drop certain members of the club that you know would just love for me to be a part of the club. We name drop in stories we tell to gain interest or to enhance it a bit. And sadly, because we do it in every aspect of life, we also do it spiritually. There's a a satire Twitter account on Twitter called uh, Pearls from Myrna. And it's a fictional account about Myrna Tellinghusen, who is described as a retired executive secretary for Mr. Stanley Bogenschutz, senior vice president at Hughes Aircraft. And so Myrna lives in a retirement community and tweets about her daily going-ons. And this is a tweet that this account put out earlier in the week. Darlene said, God spoke to her and told her she needs to be the HOA president. Well, I talked to God, and he said he never spoke to Darlene. And so this is humorous, but don't we do this on various levels in the same way? Using God to promote our agenda whether it's something that we think it's benign, that it is benign like me when I was a junior in college and I wanted to break up with my girlfriend, and when she asked me why I wanted to break up with her, I told her it was so I could focus on my relationship with, with God, but that wasn't actually true. But how could she argue with that, right? It's like a mic drop. Or it could be something as terrible as Kelly and I have experienced recently with a friend who is losing his marriage, and his wife essentially told him, I know God wants me to be happy, and I'm not happy in our marriage, violating the marriage vows that she took in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who we know hates divorce and everything in between. Thinking God ultimately wants you to provide your family so you justify throwing yourself into your career and becoming a workaholic. Or thinking that God wants you to be married and have kids so you compromise your sexual ethics in dating relationships. Or it could even be quoting things like, God helps those who help themselves. Or God will never give you anything you can't handle, which are both untrue about God and not in the Bible. Or saying things like this, well, God would never vote that way. Or the God I worship would never support that candidate or platform, merely trying to reinforce our particular political views on our friends. Again, using the name of God to open or shut doors. And the list goes on and on and on. The last way I want to point out that we take God's name in vain is by what I'm going to call religious rote. And every single one of us are susceptible to this. Here's what I mean. When we come to this place on Sunday morning, do we even pay attention to what we're doing? The call to worship this morning was the shorter catechism, right? We did a question and answer of four different questions. Did we even pay attention to what we were saying? Or did we just mindlessly mouth the words? In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the sacrament of communion. Do we even think about the enormity of what we're celebrating? That God came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ and willingly shed his body and his blood so that we can be reconciled to him? Or is it just some tradition that we've always done? What about the songs that we sing? Do we pay attention to what we're singing? And I am so guilty of this. Because there are so many Sundays that as we're singing, I'm going through my notes or thinking about the sermon I'm about to preach and I'm not even paying attention. I was even thinking about this during worship. I'm here before you speaking on behalf of God in the name of God. And early on when I was 
kind of early in my ministry and I started preaching, the criticism that I got is, Gordon, your sermons are all about you, not about God. Wasn't I taking the name of the Lord in vain in doing this? My question for us all is this. When we come here to worship Yahweh, do we actually do it? Or are we like the Pharisees in Matthew 15 of whom Jesus said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophecy, uh, prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So right about now, every single one of us should be feeling some level of discomfort. Because here's the reality. Every single person in this room has taken the name of the Lord, our God, in vain. And this is bad news. We are guilty. The verdict has been passed down, and God will not hold us guiltless. Let's look back at Exodus 20, verse 7, our passage. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless he who takes his name in vain. Well, Again, that's bad news, but we have good news before us, and the good news is this, is that the law has done its job. One of the primary uses of the law of God is to reveal to us that we need a Savior. Yes, there is a way to get to heaven by obeying the commandments, but the standard is perfection. And so God's law shows us that we can't do it. And because of that, we can't save ourselves. The law can't save us. It can change our behavior, but it can't change our hearts. And so the question is, what changes our hearts? Well, as the late Tim Keller used to always say, grace changes everything, including our hearts. And think about it this way. Where is grace in Exodus? Well, think about it. Where or when did God give his people his Ten Commandments? Was it while they were in slavery in Egypt? Did he give it to them say, if you obey these Ten Commandments perfectly, then I'm going to take you out of slavery? No, in fact, the opposite was true. Listen to this. This is Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And, the Lord, and, the, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought, I've already done it, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God says to them, I am your God. I am already your God. I am yours and you are mine. I have already set you free. I have already redeemed you. I have already saved you. And this is the real benefit that we have right now, even over Egypt. Because as they thought about their freedom, they were primarily thinking about their political freedom from slavery that God used Moses to secure for them. But for us, when we speak of our freedom, we speak of our spiritual freedom from the slavery to sin that God himself accomplished for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what will change our hearts. And that is what will change the way we speak and the way we think about God. As we uh, pastors, all the different pastors that are preaching, we come together on Tuesdays for sermon discussion. And during that time, it's a time that we'll share different resources for the passage that we're preaching on. It may be commentaries, it may be quotes, it may be articles, or it may even be other sermons. And so as I was going through some of these resources, 
there is a story told by three different pastors. And so I didn't stumble across this story, but three different people used it. And so I think it's okay if I use it as well. But um, CBS did a short story in 2012 about a World War II soldier's widow named Peggy Harris. And this is on YouTube. I would invite you to go look it up. So Peggy was married to her husband, Billy, for six weeks, and then he got shipped off to war. He was a fighter pilot, and his final mission was on July 17, 1944, over Nazi-occupied northern France, and Billy never returned from this mission. He was shot down, and he went missing, and for the rest of her life, Peggy never remarried. She just stayed devoted to him. Uh, And for various reasons, she never really learned what happened to him. For years, she was told, well, he's alive, he's dead, he's buried here, he's buried here. So she could never really get a clear answer. And so she did assume he was dead, but she never really learned the details of what happened or even found out where he was buried. And so finally, fast forward 50 years after this happened, Billy's cousin went to France and he said, I'm not coming back until I get some information. And so while he was there doing some digging, he uncovered some pretty amazing stuff. And so he learned that Billy's plane was shot down over a small French town called Levant. And as the plane was going down, Billy was heading right for the town. But instead of flying into the town, he maintained enough control of the airplane to divert it into a field nearby or into a woods nearby. And he crashed there instead. And so many of the residents of the town were watching this happen watching this man who came from the U.S. to fight for their freedom and who then saved them from the destruction of his crash. So from that moment on in 1944, Billy became a hero in that town. In fact, the main thoroughfare through town is called Place Billy D. Harris. And so every year after that, for 70 years now, the people of Levant have marched three times a year down that street to the grave sites of those who have died in the war and read their names to honor them. And so it's a super emotional um, moment as they mention all the soldiers' names. But if you watch the video, you'll see that as the mayor, seven years later, reads Billy's name, she can't hold back the tears. The memory of him still invokes so much gratitude and thankfulness from the people of this town. And so now, after all these years of wondering, Peggy Harris knows the truth. Her husband was an absolute hero. So imagine, if you will, one of these parades. There's a young child there, and he's goofing around and using Billy's name in a joke or using his name carelessly. What would someone in that town do? Would they say, hey, that's not allowed here. You stop it. Or would they say, that's against the law? No, they wouldn't. Instead, they would take the child to the side, say, come here, sit down. Let me tell you who Billy Harris is. Let me tell you what he did for us. Let me tell you how he rescued us. So we don't learn to use God's name properly by being told not to do it. We learn to do so, and we begin to do so, by seeing and remembering who he is, what he's done for us, and how he's rescued us. Again, for Egypt, it was, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. For us, it's something much, much greater. It's seeing and remembering who God is, what he's done for us, and how he's rescued us through his son. Jesus Christ came and used better words than we ever could. He never broke a commandment. 
He kept this commandment perfectly. He fulfilled it in every way. He never went through the motions about talking about God. He never used the name of God to promote his own agenda, and he never spoke profanely. And so Jesus, who lived a perfect life, only deserved a word of blessing for God, but instead he received a word of destruction in a sense in our place when he went to the cross so that you and me as we gather here today even as those who break this commandment all the time and deserve destruction and death instead we can receive his blessing the way we change the way that we talk and we think about God is remembering the story by looking at Jesus and seeing how much God loves us all he's done for us seeing how he rescued us from the destruction that was coming our way. This is how we learn to keep this commandment, to speak about God in the way he deserved, by seeing all that he's given us that we don't deserve, by the power of the Holy Spirit having our hearts change, falling in love with him more and more, and simply letting our words reflect the love and the gratitude that we have for him. This morning, we also have a very tangible way to experience this as we come to this table because coming to this table is a bit like the people going to Levant and coming to the grave of Billy Harris. It's coming to intentionally remember the man who gave his life for them, and that's why we come to this table each month. We come to remember what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. But let me give you a warning It's a way and it's a place to come and just simply go through the motions. So think deeply about what you're doing. But what an invitation we have here. An invitation that can transform us in every way, including the way we talk about God and honor his name in our thoughts and in our speech. Because when we come here, we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. I'm going to die for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. I'm going to shed my blood for your sin. Take and drink and be reminded of the great sacrifice that I'm going to make. Well, who's this table for? Who can come and take this meal? Well, it's not for perfect people. I I can promise you that because there are none. This is a table for lawbreakers. This is a table for people who have broken the third commandment and all of the 300 other commands that are in the Old Testament. It's for people who deserve to be held guiltless, but it's, to people, it's for people who look to Jesus' perfect obedience as their own. If you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ and you look to him and him alone for your salvation, that is the only requirement. If that's you, come and take this meal. Come and be reminded of the great sacrifice that he paid for your freedom. But let me warn you, if that's not you, don't go through the motions. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't violate your conscience by doing something that you don't believe in. Don't take God's name in vain by taking this meal in an improper way. Instead, keep your seat. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to notice. But there's some prayers on the back of your bulletin to guide you as you contemplate this faith. Use this time to ask really honest questions about what you believe. And come back here. This place is a very safe place to ask those questions. So it's our practice here at Hope to come down and receive the elements. And then take them back to your seat. And then once everyone has been served, we will take them together.
Uh, housekeeping, the inner eight cups are wine and everything else is grape juice and gluten-free is in the prepackaged cup. Also, if you'll come down to receive the elements down the center aisle and then take them back to your seat on the outside aisle. Let me pray for those and um, Graham, if you want to come up, that'd be great. Heavenly Father, we are lawbreakers. Uh, we have taken your name in vain in profane ways and in ways that we don't even know about. Our sin is so great uh, that we have no idea all the ways that we've sinned against you and against others, and you died for that sin. You came to make it right through your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Father, I pray that we would be reminded this morning that we are so sinful, yet we are so loved, and we are loved so much that God came to this earth and died. You died for us to bring us home. Father, I pray that you would take this ordinary bread and wine and you would set it aside for your extraordinary use, that we can be strengthened and reminded. In your name I pray, amen.